the song. Um, it's good to be here. Uh, we are in the book of Colossians, so if you have your Bible, um, go there. That's where we're going to be camping out in Colossians 1 uh, this morning. And um, the past couple of weeks, we've been in Colossians for a little while now, but the past couple of weeks... We've started a new series that is looking at the person and the work of Christ. It's the second kind of major paragraph we find going on in Colossians. And um, I think Randy uh, came up with this title, The Man, The Myth, uh, The Legend. Uh, but it's, it's focusing on Paul's theology in Colossians about the person and work of Christ. Today we're going to be looking at one verse, um, Colossians 1.18. So... Uh, we won't be going very far outside of that. Um, and in 118, Paul states this, um, that Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. And before we kind of shove off, this question just it comes out of this text. And Joel isn't lying when he tells you that the Lord has kind of taken me to the woodshed um, this week. He has deeply got into my chili about my life and the way I live my life. And it's all surrounding this one question. And that is this, and I'm asking you to ask that question with me this morning. What has supremacy in your life? What has headship in your life? What rules your life? What controls your life? What is your bottom line? What is your cornerstone? Now this is really easy. I can see it so easily in my two and a half year old um, son. I have a little boy named Hudson. And uh, at that age, this sentence begins to explode in the home. That's mine. Um, that sentence, I can't, I mean, it's like, uh, it might as well be like on repeat <laughs> in my house right now. Because everything, somehow, all of a sudden, he actually, um, he believes this, that everything that he has in his hands or he sees is his. It's actually his possession. Now, um, it's funny because I can see it in him, and I did it the other night. Um, we had some friends over, they have another little boy, it's about the same age, and you were about to see the collision of ownership occur. Uh, Hudson was not sharing uh, with this little boy, Bennett. And um, their, Bennett's parents are here, and Emily and I are here. And he, here it is. Pastor Dave, he's gonna, I'm going to step in and do some conflict resolution with my two-and-a-half-year-old uh, about, you know, what is really yours, Hudson, and what's not. And here's what I said to him. I, I, I got down really close to he and Bennett, and I said, Hudson, I said, I you see the ball that's in your hand? And he said, yeah. I said, um, you see everything you see in this room? Our house? I said, guess what? None of it's yours. None of it. It's all, it's, it's all mine. Everything that you see, everything that you eat, everything, that TV that you watch, that ball that you have, it's all mine. So I am sharing it with you, and therefore you can share it with Bennett. And I stood up, the proud pig uh, that I am, and uh, even my friend Mandy, she's like, oh, that's, that's pretty good. interesting, that was good, like, I don't really thought of it that way, and maybe that. But 
the hilarity of it, and it's not hilarity, it's tragedy, is, is that what I was saying to my son, I can't even say to myself. That I'm looking at my boy and saying, none of this is yours, Hudson. But what am I exposing and saying that to him, which is, is, it's all mine. This is mine. I have things. I have possessions. I have a life. You don't have a life. You have the life I allow you to have. Why couldn't I look at my boy and say these words? Man, I wish I could have said these words. See that ball, Hudson? It's the Lord's ball. This house, it's the Lord's house. These are the things that he has given me. And because you are my son, they are yours. But all of this is his. I don't even have a life, Hudson. My life is now hidden with Christ and God, like Paul tells us later. It exposes that I am my supreme. I am my bottom line. I am my cornerstone. And what I'm unwilling to allow my own son to do in his own sin nature, because he's got the same thing. No one had to teach him that. He needs to be freed from it, but I need to be freed from it. So two things that we're going to unpack today that Paul's talking about. First is this, Christ is the head. Second, he's the head of something particular. He's the head, namely, of the church, which Paul uses the metaphor, the body. So, what does it mean that he's the head? And then two, because he's the head of the church, what the heck does that matter for you and me today at 1120 in 12 South? Before we do it, I'm going to jog us back just real quick through a little bit of why is Paul even writing this letter to the Colossians. This is important. It sets the context for this single verse. 9 through 14 of chapter 1, he says these things. He's asking God, he's praying to God that these things would happen for the people in the Colossian church, happen for you and I today. He prays that God would fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding that you would live a life worthy of the Lord, that you would bear fruit in every good work, that you would grow in the knowledge of God, that you would be strengthened with all power according to His might, that you would have great endurance and patience through the trials of life, and that you would even have joy in those things, that you now share in the inheritance of the saints the kingdom of light, and He has rescued you from the dominion of darkness. This is why... Paul is writing this letter. These are the things he wants to see advanced in the life of the church. We have to ask this question. And it it struck me, it bulldozed me this week. Why, after declaring his intention of why he's writing this letter, does he launch into who Christ is? Why does that matter? Does that seem odd to you? These are all the things that I want, I long for, and I'm asking God to give you. Let me tell you who Christ is. I would suggest it's because he knows that all of what he is praying for, all of what he is hoping to see birthed in the lives of the Colossian church, consequently, you and me today, is dependent first and foremost on this one issue. Who is Jesus? Your understanding, my understanding, our experience of what we know, the, the movement from here to here is absolutely ex- essential for us to see some of those things or all of those things start to be birthed into our lives as a body of people. Who is Christ to you, to me? Well, let's stop and consider this for a second. If this is true, if, if the person of Christ, the work of Christ is this 
fundamental to those things happening. How much of my life, how much of my time, how much of my energy is spent thinking about the person and the work of Christ? When I started meditating on that this week, tears, repentance, my life is filled with a lot of things. But sadly, it is not nearly as filled with those things. Most of us would say, I want those things that Paul wants for the Colossian church. I want those things to happen in my life. I want to know God's will. I want spiritual wisdom and understanding. I want endurance and patience and joy. I want his power to work through me. So why then do you, do I find myself not meditating upon, deeply considering, immersing myself, complete saturation of my mind and life on the person and work of Christ. Why is this so unfamiliar to me? I think portions of what we're going to look at today give us some understanding to that. Last week, Randy was here last week, yeah? He talked about Paul's initial brushstrokes of here's who Christ is. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For him and by him, all things were created. Things on heaven and earth, visible and invisible, Thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And in him, all things hold together. (laughs) Paul's initial statements, it's like going to 50,000 feet in the air. Let's Let's get a grand view of the person of Christ. He doesn't talk about you know, the donkey in the inn and there's no room in the inn and here come the, you know, frankincense and myrrh and shepherds and all this. He's not, that's not where Christ enters the scene in redemption. He's saying Christ is present at the creation of everything that existed. It's a beautiful picture. The scope, the magnitude, the gravity, the grandeur, the weight of Christ's person and work. Evie works here. We were talking about that sermon, some of the slides that Randy showed of like the fifth nebulae of 14 Hubble telescopes, magnification, power. You could travel 18 universes worth of all of our lives and never get there. We were kind of dialoguing about all this and she just said, when he started showing those things and reading those facts, I wanted to vomit. Like I just wanted to puke. I was just like, oh... But don't miss this. What Paul is doing here, what do you, why are those two verses so important? He is setting the stage for us to swallow verse 18. It's when we're faced with the vastness, the supremacy, the creative power of who Christ is. The reciprocal feeling, isn't it? I want to puke. <laughs> I feel small, I smell, I feel smi- I, I almost said sminite, finite. It reduces us. And let me tell you, that's okay. I know everything in culture says, build up your view of yourself. But most of the problems that we have going on in our world today are not from a lack of self-inflated view. That if we could get a little smaller view of us, if we could be put into our place, which we really are, get into a correct posture, this is the realistic view of ourselves that we need to have. 
when I was flying, I told a little bit about a story flying last time, so I'm going to stay away from too many airplane <laughs> illustrations. But I was flying from Denver to Alamosa, non-bumpy flight, uh, if you are here for the last uh, story. Uh, we got up, and I remember looking out, and this happens almost every single time I'm in an airplane. I'll look down, and I'll see, this is before you kind of get up above the clouds, you see houses. And if you're flying into a city that you're familiar with, you'll kind of look and say, like, oh, do I recognize any of that? And look how many swimming pools people have. And, I mean, you know, it's just funny. And you're like, oh, oh, I didn't realize. You know, you get a view of something. When we were flying out of Denver, I saw this cluster of houses. We were kind of just getting into where the mountains start happening. And there was this neighborhood. And it was huge. Kind of one road in, one road out. But maybe, I mean, I don't know, six, seven hundred houses. I couldn't count. I was like, as we were flying by. But as I was kind of looking at them, I remember I, I got this sense, I really felt like the Lord said this to me, you'll never know those people. And I was like, huh? He's like, those people, they'll never hear you talk. They'll never know what you think about life or they'll never know your ideas about things and you won't know theirs. You see how many people are right there in this little pocket that you literally probably will never interact with? And it, it, it kind of like, ugh, like get away from the window for a second. It made my view of myself, my importance, it put it into perspective. Do you see how inflated my ideas are about my life and how important it is in light of the rest of the world? But it's true. I can become so blinders on, so immersed. And all it takes is getting up into an airplane to realize, holy cow, those, those people... They have their whole thing going on and it may never interact with my thing and that's just one little neighborhood in Denver. It's not the world. That's not all the things Randy showed. We have two choices when we're faced with the reality. And we did. We talked about these last time. Or Randy did. We can either worship and wonder, which I would suggest to you, that is what falling under the headship under the sovereignty, under the supremacy of Christ, looks like. We worship. You can't worship something you think you're unequal to. I worship you, Lord, because I, I finally see myself for who I am, and I finally see you for who you are. We either do that, or we do what I do many, many, many days. We run and we retreat. And what we run and retreat to are two things. Ignorance, don't show me the slides. As long as I don't know that that giant nebula isn't there, then it's not real. I mean, how much of our lives is lived by the ignorance is bliss? Just, I don't want to know that part of what Scripture says about that because that might mess with my M.O. of how I want to get my life done. Or illusions. I've got to create all these false realities that I, I so put the blinders on to everything that the Lord may be saying. I've got these little illusory worlds. If we were shown all the little illusory worlds, we would have mountains. I am an illusion creator all the time. I want to create the illusion that all of this is coming off easy when I know I've been in tears most of the week trying to process this. It's only from this posture of humility from this finite place that Randy set up, that we can even hear 118 of Colossians. Paul is fighting against the retreating into the illusions that you and I do.
So 118. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Two things we're going to look at. Christ is the head, and he is the head of the body. First this, Christ is the head. He is first, he is supremacy. There's a sentence in here, and I'm going to let N.T. Wright speak into it, because uh, I think he'll be able to explain it a little more succinctly than I could. Um, he is the beginning, the firstborn over the dead. And I want to read to you what he remarks on this. It says, with Jesus, Jesus's resurrection, the new age has dawned. A new man has emerged from the old humanity, whose life he shared, whose pain and sin he has borne. For Paul, as throughout the whole Bible, sin and death were inextricably linked, so that in Christ's victory over the latter signaled his defeat of the former. Firstborn here, particularly when taken closely with the arche, A-R-C-H-E, it's a Greek word, which means beginning. He's the beginning, he's the firstborn. In the sense of beginning implies that Christ's resurrection, though presently unique, what was happening in, in the redemptive history was unique, though presently unique, will be acted out by a great company of others, you and me, those of us who are in Christ Paul believed that God brought forward the inauguration of an age to come, the age of the resurrection into the present age, in order that the power of the new age might be unleashed upon the world while there was still time for the world to be saved. Jesus' resurrection was thus accomplished so that in everything he might have supremacy. That which he was by right whether you're ignorant to it or not, whether I'm ignorant to it or not, that he set the world in motion, all the things that we looked at last week, he became in fact. In becoming a person and coming, dying on the cross, he put the period on the reality of who he is. God's plan is not merely to sum up the old creation, but to inaugurate the new creation in and through Christ. Christ is first. His work of atonement, the redemption that was accomplished through his death and resurrection affirm who he really is. Jesus is God in flesh. He is first. He has supremacy in our lives. I thought this was such a beautiful insight. Christ is the inauguration of the new age into the present age. And we who are in Christ, we are the purveyors, the displayers. I don't care what you do what kind of work you do, what kind of work you don't do. You, if you are in Christ this morning, you are bringing that new age to everything you set your, your hands to, your mind to, every waking moment of the day. You are literally reflecting or not reflecting this new age. The imburst of the resurrected life into this present reality. This is the work of the church displayed through the various functions of the body. This is why it's important that we understand he's the head and that he's not just the head, but he's the head of something particular, us, the body, the church. But before we leave this and talk about the body, we're going to come back to the question, what is your first? What has supremacy in your life, in my life? This is a borrowed term, but I would encourage you, whatever is your first, it is your functional head. It is your practical God. If money is first, then it is your head, and therefore it rules you. What else? 
emotions, feelings, praise, affirmation, control, security, fear, doubts, yourself, all that wrapped up into one? How can we tell what our firsts are? And I think Joel maybe shared some of this the other day, but I'm going to share it just in case some of you weren't here. I'm not 100% positive. But Tim Keller, this is given from him. This to me is one of the most accurate tools I think I've ever read that helps me, and I did it, prayed through these things that I feel like the Lord really exposed to me. This is what's sovereign in your life. This is what rules you. The first is this. One way requires that we look at our imagination. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? I could stop there. What does my imagination wrapped around, fixated upon? What do I habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of my own heart? Another way is to discern how you spend your money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your money flows effortlessly towards your heart's greatest love. In fact, the mark of an idol, the mark of something supreme, is that you spend too much money on it and you must try to exercise self-control constantly in that area. The third thing he suggests, so imagination, our money, is a good way to discern how you respond, is, is how you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes to expose to you what your real, daily, functional salvation is. Where are my unanswered prayers and hopes and how do I respond to those things? If you ask for something and you don't get it, you may become disappointed. Then you go on, hey, life's not over. Those are not your functional masters. But when you pray and work for something, you don't get it. And you you respond with explosive anger or deep despair, then you may have found your real God. And the final thing is, is look at your most uncontrollable emotions. Is there something here too important for me? Something I must have at all costs for my life? I'm so scared because something in my life is being threatened that I think is a necessity when it's not. Imagination, money, unanswered prayers, frustrated hopes, and your uncontrollable emotions. If you ask God (laughs) this week, If you take those things and walk through those things with him, say, show me these things, Lord. Hang on. Um, It may ruin your week, but it will resurrect your week because he will begin to sift through a lot of the things that honestly are supreme in our lives, things that rule us that aren't Christ. So, what does this matter? What is this? matter what Paul is saying here is emphatically if you're in Christ he is first you are a part of the new humanity that without his work would never have been realized this is why anything functionally or practically moves anything moves to the center and a priority place in my life there is tension a lot of you and I experience tension all the time in our lives but oftentimes this is not why we think this isn't what we think is going on it's usually the tension is because something, some of those things that I read just a bit ago, unanswered hopes, frustrated hopes, unanswered prayers, 
Well, Christ, it says in Galatians 5.1 that he has set us free. And we are free. But free to what end? Now, this illustration is probably going to tank. I'm just giving that to you right now. Um, I've kind of titled it Muse versus the Indigo Girls. Or Muse without the Indigo Girls. Uh, some of you are familiar with Muse's music. Um, Uprising, new song. Um, heard it? No? Yeah? They will not force us. No? They will stop degrading us. They will not control us. We will be victorious. I mean, it's... We see it everywhere in our culture. It's, I want to be, I don't want to be under the control. Capitalism, marketplace values, whatever. I don't know what Muse is singing about, but what they're singing about is I want to be out from under that. I want to be free. Now, I don't know Muse's theology, but I don't know what freedom looks like for them, but free to what end? What do I want to be freed from that to, to what? I think the Indigo Girls hit the gospel freedom to what end on the head. Song Power 2, I won't sing the Indigo Girls, says this, the closer I'm bound in love to you, the closer I am to free. It's one of the most beautiful sentences I've ever read in a, in a, in a lyric of a song. It was on my wedding program. The closer I'm bound in love to you, the closer I am to free. I don't, I don't know where a few muses going with this. Just freedom, freedom to do whatever I want. I just don't want to be under your control. But the gospel is saying, I have set you free from something, but I have bound you to something else. You are under the authority and the headship of me. I have purchased you. I have bought you from the kingdom of darkness to which you were a slave, and now I have brought you into the kingdom of light, and you are free. This is who you were made to be. This is the new humanity. And that leads us to this. His headship has a plan. The work of the church. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about that he has made us Christ's ambassadors. That he is reconciling the world unto himself through us. He is making his appeal through us. This is what we have been set free to, but this is what we are bound to. The explosion, the purveyors of the new age. I'm going to rifle through these real quick, but this is important because this tells you about who Jesus is. How did Christ accomplish this? We belong to him. We are his possession. Deuteronomy 7, 6 tells us that we are his treasured possession, chosen from all the peoples on the face of the earth. How did he make us his treasured possession? He bought us. He purchased us with his blood. Acts 20, 28. He bought us with his own blood. Don't miss this. Why did he do it? Love was the motive. Not some disgruntled obligation. Not some, oh, the church is the kid who got picked last for kickball, so I guess I'll make my people out of that. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ when we were dead, with our, dead in sins and transgressions. Ephesians 2, 4. Love was the motive. He raises us to newness of life. Not just resurrection for Christ, but 
in him in baptism and raised through him through faith and power of God who raised him from the dead. Colossians 2.12 We have been raised as well. Another important thing. He is for us. You and I cannot submit to any kind of leadership, any kind of headship, any kind of supremacy if you don't believe two things. Fundamentally, that thing is good and two, it's for me. That's why who Christ is, knowing who Christ is, is so important. Meditating on it, immersing your mind in it. He is good. He is for you, regardless of what you feel, regardless of the crap you have going on in your life, in this temporal blip in eternity. Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He goes even further. He seals us. He gives us the promised Holy Spirit. He marks us. And then lastly, he makes us a body. This is back to the headship idea. And this is barred from N.T. Wright as well. He made us for mutual interdependence, which means you guys and I, we need each other badly. And he makes us for organic dependence upon himself. Organic dependence, John 15 Apart from me, you can do nothing of eternal value. I'm the vine, you are the branches. I made you to need and depend on me for everything. How does that exercise itself? Mutual interdependence. So all of us, organic dependence, then mutually interdependent. The body is a unit. There are many parts, they form one body. This is second, or 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18. I thought this was a beautiful verse. God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Are you happy with what part you are? Mm. The answer probably is no. The answer is is probably I'm actually trying to be more than one part. Because that's what our culture says. Self-sufficiency, goal of mankind. Don't need anybody else. So it's not okay to just be a finger or a foot or a toe or an ear. You have, to, you have to build your entire own body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body which seem to be weaker are indispensable. You guys, <laughs> I hope you're sensing how countercultural this is. In our culture, role, what part you are, equals value. The, the new kingdom, the new age says value is constant. Value is never on the table anymore. You are valuable for one reason, because of what Christ did. So you are free. Free to be what? Free to be whatever I'm doing right now. I'm doing this because this is my role, I guess. Okay, what's your role? What are you called to? It's no less valuable. In fact, those little minute things, the people who make the coffee and whatever... Maybe watching the kids or running the sound. Indispensable. Role doesn't equal value. I learned at a very early age, use your gifts, Dave, for the Lord. And here's how you use them. Set yourself apart from everybody else. The Dave Show. Woo! Almost did a herky. Um, some of you cheerleaders. Um, that's not a kingdom understanding of the body. I use 
my gifts as a role to fulfill something much greater than myself, the advancement of the gospel. We have no current context for this. We live in a society of rampant individualism. An inability to commit to anything. I'll commit to that. Kind of see how it feels. See if the hang's good. But if it starts to kind of, someone said something weird, I'll distance myself from it. We don't have that option, guys. If you are in Christ, you are purchased. You are a part of the body. So a couple questions. Once again, what is your first? What is your center? Andrew Del Blanco says it like this. When I say center, I mean in the gravitational sense of the word. The point around which we orbit. And toward which, if we lose velocity, we fall. Is it Christ? Is it the deep love displayed for you and for me and his person and his work? Purchasing us from this old kingdom, kingdom of darkness, enslaved to sin into a kingdom of light? There are three things I'm going to give you that from this week have helped me that help keep Christ in the supremacy position. And they're this. First, ask for revelation. Ask. Ask the Lord. Ask somebody else. Show me my firsts. Show me. Will you speak into my life and tell me where are things taking supremacy What do I orbit around functionally, practically? What are my idols? And I'd encourage you, that's not just a conversation with a friend. That is, it's that and more. It's not just prayer and it's not just meditation. Hebrews 4.12 says this, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In the Word. It's a part of this. If you have no life in the Word and you're seeking to know God's will for your life or you're seeking to know what takes supremacy in my life, the Word will show you. If you will just spend time in it. It will judge the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. What happens after you get the revelation? Repent. Repent and rest. Isaiah 30, 15. And repentance and rest is your salvation. And quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. We repent. We turn. We let it shrink us. And we worship God for who He is. And what does rest look like? I would suggest this. It looks like gazing. Rest is gazing. 2 Corinthians 4.18 Fix your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Colossians 3, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts and minds on things above. Gazing regularly. This is resting. Gazing. So get that? Resting is work. Resting is still doing something. It recalibrates our lives to the truth of two things. Guys, we are his treasured possession. The apple of his eye, the affection the one who left eternity or heaven and came down and became man in order that you and I could know him. We're the treasure possession. And the thing that he tells Abraham in Genesis 15, when you begin to wrap your mind around the fact that you're the treasure possession, this is what happens. You discover 
He is what he said to Abraham. I am your great reward. I am the thing you desire. I'm the thing that you're looking for and everything else. It's me. Let's pray. Lord, um, this is hard. Um, We feel laid open, laid bare a little bit, um, undoubtedly. Um, There are so many things in our lives that are supreme. Um, So many things other than the gospel. So many things other than you, Jesus. So, Father, I just pray even right now for myself and for us here, Lord, that you would give us revelation, that you give us the grace to repent, and that you would fasten our eyes, even if for these moments, or I pray for this entire week, you would fix our eyes on who you are, Lord, on what you've done on our behalf. In your name, amen.